what I found with my teaching in Buddhist studies and elsewhere uh, is that you can teach any topic from many perspectives, but the best teaching will come from the perspective that you're most excited about. Welcome to this episode of The Circled Square, the podcast where we talk about teaching Buddhism in higher education. My name is Sarah Richardson from the Ho Center for Buddhist Studies at the University of Toronto. In this episode, we sat down with Matt King. Matt King is an associate professor in transnational Buddhism at UC California Riverside, and also presently the chair of Asian Studies. He was just our second guest ever on this podcast, so we were still learning how to do things, and it's a little long, but this was also because Matt's really interesting. Matt's a friend, he did his PhD here in Toronto back in 2014, and at the time when we were speaking, he had just published his first book about Mongolian countermodern Buddhist responses and the ruins of the Qing Empire. Our interview with Matt was him really speaking between theory and practice and often thinking about ways to support and grow his students, especially in disciplines like religion. He's asking, why do we teach what we teach? How can we actually help people with these subjects? And what should we be doing as Buddhist studies scholars to better engage in public discourse? So enjoy our interview with Matt King about engaging students in the big picture. So I teach in a um, department for the study of religion at UC Riverside. Um, I'm also affiliated in the Complete and Foreign Languages program. And I'm also now the chair of the Asian Studies program. So that's a way of talking about uh, where our students come from, at least on my side of religious studies. I get students from those different programs as well. Um, so at an undergrad level, in terms of Buddhism classes, um, we get students from everywhere. To be honest, in our institution, they're usually taught at the upper undergraduate level, like mm -hmm. a third or fourth year level. Mm -hmm. And at that point, students in other colleges are still doing breadth requirements. So my Buddhism classes have religious studies majors, some history kids, complete students, neurology students, mm -hmm. mechanical engineering students. Mm -hmm. That's a way of saying that maybe the prerequisite requirements are not always honored in the rush to get students to degree, but that's one of the best parts about teaching, actually. I some of the best undergrads I've had have been from cognitive science, mm -hmm. uh, have taken courses in Buddhism. So um, in terms of preparation, you know, the usual with Buddhist studies classes, right? Some students have, you know, been done a Vipassana retreat, you know, lived at a Dharma center in Nepal. Um, but more commonly for me at UC Riverside is that uh, people grew up in a Buddhist household or they went and visited grandma and grandpa and had to go to the Vietnamese temple or the Thai temple or something. Mm -hmm. And um, it was just part of growing up, but they never had any education in Buddhism. Um, so, you know, everyone in a way is starting from the same place. Some general interest, whether it's two theories of mind that are outside of Western medical models or... Uh, wanting to understand more about like what what was I doing at Temple mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and or you know setting what I learned at the Dharma Center into some historical context and then at the graduate level of course we have uh, mm -hmm. students who have a lot more preparation both in terms of social theory and in terms of the tradition they want to um, explore yeah okay great um, it must be a rich space then for teaching in that like yeah yeah um, so 
Can you take us back a little bit to how you began your own journey in this in this field? Like, how did you get interested in the study of Buddhism, and where does that where does that path start for you? <laughs> oh yeah, um, well, I got very interested in Buddhism when I was about like fourteen or fifteen, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, growing up in Canada, growing up in Canada, yeah. a few hours outside of Toronto, um, and. Uh, what I, you know, I started um, coming down to the city and going to Dharma centers and, uh, you know, going and exploring spe- specifically um, Tibetan Buddhist traditions and so on. Anyway, so I had a kind of a personal interest in Buddhism before even starting a BA. Uh, in fact, I wanted to be a monk. You know, I was obsessing. I went and lived at a monastery when I was 17 for white monks in France, and I wasn't even going to finish high school. So my parents like were like, don't throw your life away. <laughs> Go do it there. You know, the, neither of them went through college. You know, I'm a first-generation college student. So they were just like, please, please, just do one year of university. We've saved our whole lives so you can just do one year. In any case, when I was an undergrad, I didn't want to do any religious studies classes, and I didn't. I just did linguistic anthropology, you know, historical anthropology, all this other stuff, and art, painting and drawing. So I never did anything until um, later on, with no real ambitions for grad school, I took one class in Tibetan language that you were in <laughs> 12 years ago, we figured out, right? Or yeah, something like something that. Something like that. Maybe longer. Maybe, yeah, okay. Let's say 12. <laughs> we'll say 12. Um, and um, that was great. And then, you know, I left and uh, um, eventually I went to Mongolia. I went to India. I was an attendant for a Lama teaching in the Gobi Desert. I was kind of had a, and then I was also like digging holes on construction sites and thinking, oh, maybe I want to try to do a bit more school. And thankfully, um, Francis Garrett, who became my supervisor, you know, encouraged me to think about doing an MA in religious studies that opened up a whole new pathway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. So uh, you mentioned Francis, but who were the teachers who made the biggest impact on you and why? Um, yeah, well, so here's a way of maybe yeah, I could uh, say that Sally Tagliamonte, who's in linguistics here at the University of Toronto, is, uh, I mean, Francis Garrett sets a very high bar, but Sally also was one of the mo- one of those teachers that just, you know, um, opens up entire worlds of the imagination, not just in terms of what she was teaching, but the way that she taught. And she was someone that went way out of her way to create research opportunities for undergraduates that um, I took part in and got me out of the crowd as a sort of reclusive younger person mm-hmm. um, and show me that, Hey, maybe there's a pathway forward. And I love research and I got to do a bunch of stuff um, in a linguistic anthropology lab. And so that opened up a whole sense that maybe I could pursue research and pursue graduate work, not in linguistic anthropology, but in the humanities more generally, you know, and that still really informs the way that I'm thinking today about trying to create spaces for undergraduate research because I know the kind of opportunities it can create. What, what kind of, can you give us an example of what she had you do in the class? Yeah. That... So she had a, a, a big multi-year project called Intovation with the toe being TO for Toronto. And what it was doing was uh, a multi-year project to identify and document old line English in Toronto. Old line meaning that someone had grown up here in the greater Toronto area and was still living here. You know, whatever else, you know, was going on that was different. That was the requirement. And so what that meant for me was uh, myself and somebody, another st- student researcher, were given um, some money to not have to go work in a terrible job in the summer. And 
a microphone and we just went knocking on doors for six months or something all over Toronto and tried to not scare people and convince them that we just wanted to talk for this project. And so, you know, I ended up speaking to, you know, guys that were riding the streetcar in Toronto when there was coal fires here still and, you know, that rode a horse to where the Eaton Center is now, you know, uh, and, and so on. And, and then be part of transcribing and watching the actual trained linguists kind of come to conclusions about what the nature of English is, say, in the last two or three generations and how it's evolved and changed, which I hear is still a project that's ongoing here at U of T still, I guess, like 15 years later or something. Oh, interesting. Um, so anyways, it was an opportunity to actually do research. And we even got to go and present a poster at a big conference as like an undergrad, which for me was just like unheard of. You know, it was not something I could have done on my own. So. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Mm-hmm. And then you've said that you think about this now in your classroom. So how mm-hmm. how has that inspired you? Yeah, well, where I teach now, um, we have excellent students and sort of a high bar for admissions. But a lot of our students are first generation. Majority of our students, I think, mm-hmm. um, are first generation. First generation to university, you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, an incredible place to teach because... Um, they are they are there on the backs of one or two generations in many cases, and they're there to work and to learn. And even though they often have very um, exceptionally kind of uh, busy lives, uh, they still work very hard. And they're chomping at the bit to, you know, make this work for them. Very pragmatic um, way of being in an undergraduate classroom, and which I think is really uh, useful. So, um, you know you just have to open the door I've found and they're lining up to be a research assistant to, but more than that, what's been more useful is tapping into resources at the university to support them in doing their, their original research, not having them help me with mine. Cause to be honest, they can't really help. Right. Mm-hmm. But they, if they're really excited about a term paper that they did for your class, because I teach classes like religion and science, problem and religion, religion and violence, social theory. And I t- teach outside of Buddhist studies as well. So whatever their term paper was that they're excited about, you know, f- to just really tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, I will continue working with you on this. And why not submit it to our undergraduate journal? Why not submit it to be considered for our undergraduate research conference? Why not submit it to be uh, it? as an application as part of becoming a, a fellow for our chancellor's research fellowship. Thing. And these are just UCR examples. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are willing to work so hard. And, you know, I've got four or five of those students now, two of them that did Buddhism, who have off, they're off doing graduate work now. Two went to Harvard, one went to Michigan. We have one that's at Chicago Wow. in Islamic studies. Um, you know, and that's, uh, they were, they really, really put themselves there. You know what I mean? So anyways, so just creating spaces for excellence in undergraduate research, I feel like is a responsibility also like knowing how much in debt these students are, mm-hmm. um, how uh, inadequate, say, a religious studies department is in communicating to undergraduates why their major actually matters, let alone Buddhist studies, you know? Yeah. We do such terrible jobs at that. Um, and uh, so, you know, helping them professionalize and get experience that will help, whether they go to graduate school or go to law school or do anything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that, it's a hard sell, surely, right? Like yeah. the pragmatism, what, what is the practical application for a lot of students of our types of courses and research? Mm-hmm. And it's, how do you, how do you work with that and explain that to them? And also mm-hmm. I was wondering as you were talking how, I mean, yes, some of the really gifted ones go to graduate work further on, but the only work of this is not also 
going no, on in this God, in no. the field. No, right? no, no, no. So how do yeah? What's the what is the kind of what is the cell that we yeah. can make? Well, my pragmatic. pitch at least, yeah. and it's always changing, right? Yeah. But for me, I think what I have said most recently is like, look, whatever you do after this degree, you know, whether you're starting your internship at a local office or whatever, you're going to be called on to um, take account of a bunch of information to synthesize it together, to present it to others in a compelling, persuasive way that will then drive forward, you know, the conversation or projects in your community. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. That's what we're training to do you to do with essay writing. You know, you, whether you ever think again about a 13th century Tibetan biography, you are surely going to need to uh, articulate a unique interpretation of our complex and messy world or the complex and messy data points that are part of your business and so on. Right. So, um, and it's a, in the humanities, we organize our thinking primarily through writing and this is the project, but you know, clear writing is clear thinking. And so take this seriously. This is a skill, you know? Um, but then more broadly, I think you also need to have a, it's, we're not teaching writing, you know, they can go to learn writing mm -hmm. in better ways for more qualified people mm -hmm. in some ways, right? Like writing. What? We're not the best writers. <laughs> what? <laughs> you don't have to say that this month just because your book is out. <laughs> I know I am not at least, but uh, you know, but I think there's a real pitch for the humanities and the social sciences as well for why it matters, you know, because you know, uh, I don't follow the sort of, you know, the humanities creates moral c citizens or, you know, or that professors are somehow moral leaders for students. You hear people say that, mm -hmm. God help us. You know <laughs> what I mean? But for me, um, learning to think critically about difference mm -hmm. and to denaturalize the way we are in place and time and embodiment is mm -hmm. not just an exercise of the mind. That is the most political needed exercise that any of us can go through. Mm -hmm. There is an otherwise to how we are in the world and what seems natural and unmovable. Mm -hmm. Climate change, you know what I mean? The experience of structural inequalities, right? You know, I mean, it, it's these all have histories. And the second we start thinking about those histories, other things become possible, right? The humanities and social sciences uniquely do that. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, big industries and, you know, in California, Silicon Valley, all these people are like, Send us your gender studies graduates. Send us your religious studies graduates. We'll teach them the algorithms, but we want people that can think and evaluate, you know, and draw unique new connections. And, um, and, uh, and yet, you know, colleges and humanists and social scientists very rarely echo those calls in effective mm -hmm. ways to draw in majors. You know, it's terrible, terrible branding. Mm -hmm. But there's a pitch there. And those courses are live. And I need to, you know, I should say, like, I'm always chasing after trying to make my Buddhist studies classes as alive as my courses are in like thinking about like ethno-nationalism and or, you know, the, the Orientalist histories and colonial histories of anthropology and social sciences mm -hmm. or teaching about Freud or Marx, for example. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because um, those classes, which are great pitches for the humanities and social sciences, do really connect with students, you know, yeah. even if they never think about it again. And Buddhism can become that way, Yeah, I think. Absolutely. Um, so can you give us some tangible examples of times and or little exercises you've used with students or, or topics you've used with students to open up to use Buddhism in that way or use yeah. something from the Buddhist studies from going deep in into mm -hmm. some example they probably haven't heard of before mm -hmm. that it then allows this kind of broader yeah. engagement? So what 
is necessary in my opinion, at least for where I am and the teaching I like to do and who my students are right now, requires at the outset mm, centering the history of why there is such a thing as Buddhist studies, Buddhism and or Asia as objects of academic inquiry. Mm. That's kind of how I usually start those classes. Like, why do you guys open the course calendar and see Buddhism listed to some next to something called Judaism and Christianity and Islam? Mm-hmm. Or also, you know, say Taoism or Confucianism or something. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, why does that seem natural, right? Why does it seem natural that we can, you know, jump on a spaceship or a time machine and jump out anywhere and say, oh, that's that's religion and maybe that's something like science or philosophy. Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, why do we organize our knowledge about the world in, in these ways? And um, which, of course, with Buddhism, which is the wonderful potential of teaching and writing and thinking about Buddhism, but which I think is a little untapped still, is that, you know, Buddhism is the product of, it's the classic product of colonial scholarship. It is forged in the space of Orientalism. Mm. It is inexorable from the founding of academic disciplines about the non-West. Mm-hmm. And because of that, it's in the most wonderful position for kind of the most critical revisionist teachings, both in terms of bringing students into the complex, sometimes very different, beautiful worlds of social and religious imagination or whatever of the communities we we want to explore uh, elsewhere in the world outside of the sort of Euro North American tradition. Um, but also, <laughs> to use a Buddhist metaphor, you know, the mirror can turn around on itself. You know what I mean? And so a, a course of study in Buddhism should be about decolonizing and revising the humanities and social sciences in the same breath of learning about the 12 deeds of the Buddha and who Milarepa was and what the difference between Zen and Vipassana meditation is and so on. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, the mm-hmm. problem with teaching in Buddhism is you have to do so much legwork for them just to get a bunch of kind of the basic roadmap of like who, what, when, where, why. What are some key terms and sort of orientations to like these existential questions yeah. <laughs> about the human and also how is the human constructed in these various ways? What are um, shared alignments that can organize for the purposes of teaching mm-hmm. undergraduates? Um, but I still do think that, uh, you know, you can kind of set into history the very space of that teaching right from the outset. And at the very end as well. Do you find that you have to work against a lot of their baggage too? I mean, they they don't maybe don't have a lot of knowledge of the twelve deeds or who, what, when, but they also have a perception. Often, I mean, there's a kind of a shared mm-hmm. cultural perception now mm-hmm. of Buddhism being this other good thing, this you know, a philosophy, not a religion, a mm-hmm. thing that can be mined for secular need well, you know <laughs> and it- the needs of capitalism. And right, so mm-hmm. we're how do you work? with that and not only you know in my experience that mm-hmm. narrative comes from buddhist studies scholars not from students mm. actually my experience you know i've never had students want to save buddhism their version of buddhism that they find on you know tricycle at the health food store when they're checking out or whatever you know what i mean in other words the buddhism that white people teach in a sort of therapeutic model but our students at least are kind of very ripe for thinking through the racialized, classed construction of the kinds of Buddhism that your average undergraduate student might have encountered. By average, I mean one students that didn't grow up with it in the household, but probably have encountered it, you know, in the yoga studio or when they were traveling to Goa or when they were, you know, their friend took them to a Zen center or something like that. You know, mm. 
I've never heard anyone push back on. That's not my version of Buddhism, including students who are very dedicated and seasoned sort of people that have been in Dharma communities for a long time. Mm. Um, it's always Buddhist studies scholars, in my opinion, that have this idea because of the scholar-practitioner ambiguities in Buddhist studies that I think is um, is a problem. Not that it shouldn't be scholar-practitioners, but just that it needs to be disambiguated about what we're trying to accomplish in this sort of uh, the teaching of, of Buddhist studies. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, is this essentially theology or some critical constructivist project? Is this social history? Is this political history? Is this gender history? Is this a decolonial? You know, I feel like that stuff is so ambigu- ambiguous when it comes to talking about teaching about Buddhism and just about the whatever the professional field of Buddhist studies is. I'm not even sure, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Um, so anyways, I, I mean, I do always foreground those things and I think it's a huge in, you know, that's a way for students to lean in, even if they did learn, even if that, even if they want to just understand like what, who was I offering an orange to when I went to the Watt with grandma, or even if it is like, oh, that's what this guy was teaching. He was calling it like moral comfort, but actually it's, you know, Sheila or something, whatever, you know what I mean? Um, they, uh, then there is, it's like a multi- uh, it, there's lots of inroads to the material that way. I feel like, you know, mm-hmm. for, um, for them getting some skin in the game. Mm-hmm. Cause they, why not? Why can't Buddhism be about, uh, the, about, a um, part of a broader course of like critical thinking and engagement revisionist scholarship that, you know, is part of teaching undergrads, you know? So decolonizing Buddhist studies, how, how, how could we, how could we do it with them in the classroom? Because Buddhist studies, like the way we think and teach about Buddhism and know Buddhism in relationship to modernity in the academy is is fundamental to constructing the non-West as an intellectual project. You know, Buddhism comes out of the ether of paganist non-Western traditions first. Buddhism still seems exceptional in popular discourse compared with like Islam or something like that. You know what I mean? Why is that? For whom? You know, and what does it reflect, right? So, you know, we all kind of know that. I mean, it's kind of method and theory of religious studies 101, especially if you're doing Asian traditions. And yet we know the histories and yet the implications are never enacted or very rarely enacted, you know? I think that sometimes uh, like uh, feminist queer scholars and they're doing work in Buddhism do do these things. There's like a post-colonial strand that maybe picks up some of this stuff. But I think just in general, you know, um, thinking about Buddhism allows you to come up to historicize the, in particular, ethnography, philology, and other early, you know, 19th century disciplines that were made to know the non-West, and in particular made to know and and manage a colony um, in Asia that um, uh, are really productive. And this becomes what a teachable moment. How, now that we know the sort of Protestant, European-inflected histories and the Orientalist sort of strategies that Buddhist studies continues to reproduce in some ways, what would the otherwise of that be? What if we didn't think about Buddhism alongside Christianity? Now that you kids have learned and we've been having this conversation over 20 meetings in 10 weeks, what is what is what would be a better categories for thinking about Buddhism? You know, you don't have to have the answers, but you know, the revisionist kind of project is about, I think, inviting more voices to the table and pluralizing in our analytical models, you know, and students have lots to say about that. In Mm -hmm. fact, you know, 
they have a lot more to say about that than the Four Noble Truths. I'll tell you that, you know, you can do both. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. Um, so what do you think is some of the public work um, of the public work of humanities, which I, you've already been talking about a bit, right? Because, mm-hmm. of course, this classroom teaching is, you know, in, uh, aiming at getting people also out in the world. Not, um, uh-huh. But what, yeah, what is then the pen- potential, you think, for the public work of humanities and the public academic? My, my thing that comes to my mind, honestly, is how many regional traditions of Buddhism that we align ourselves with you know, Tibetan Buddhism, Burmese Buddhism, whatever, uh, were on the receiving end of, like, profound state violence in the 19th and 20th centuries. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. How many of us work on histories of violence and call it Buddhist studies, or, you know, at least our scholarship on Buddhism is deeply implicated, not just with historical kind of enactments of state violence, ongoing state violence that we all deal with, um, but we don't necessarily talk about a lot uh, collectively, or at least we don't talk about in terms of like a a critical response, a collective critical response. Um, So, um, you know, a lot of the people who are representative of the traditions we study, um, who of course can also be scholars, but they um, are refugees and diasporas. They are casualties of the modern formation of Asia in some cases, which is also the same way of saying they're casualties of like American and European intervention and, you know, into Asia, right? Or inter-Asian intervention and suppression and so on. So um, when I think about the public base, I've got other answers for the public base of the humanities and social sciences, but when it comes to the public base of Buddhist studies, mm. I feel like there's an absolute silence in terms of talking about Buddhism in the same breath as power and violence and the construction of the modern mm-hmm. that is, um, you know, reprehensible in some ways and irresponsible for, you know, for those of us that get to have the sort of aristocratic life of an academic. So I'm not saying that there should be a politic, but I always, this is what I talk about with these students. I'm like, think about if you're a scholar of Vietnam or Cambodia and Laos in, in the 60s or 70s, you know, mm. this CIA was using the work of anthropologists working on those areas to, in their bombing campaigns. What's your responsibility? Right. And I'm just saying, you know, we, my book that just came out ends with 40,000 people getting shot in the back of the head. You know what I mean? And not to be dramatic, but that's mm-hmm. how when I when Mongols hear about what I'm working on and my friends and colleagues in Mongolia, that's the frame that they're receiving this in. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So how can our teaching on something as rarefied as say Buddhist scholasticism or the Kala Chakra or the Abhidharma or something like that at this in the same breath, not just be about sort of exposing histories of the humanities and social sciences and thinking to collectively with students about what better ways of thinking difference that are, that don't reproduce those sort of colonial histories. Um, but how, what are the, what are the ethics of scholarship of on say Buddhist traditions or Asian societies that are bound up so intricately with the experience of state violence, right? I'm not saying go start an NGO or go take your students to go protest you know, 
I mean, I just finished teaching a class on, on Tibetan Buddhism that ended with self-immolation, mm-hmm. you know? So what, what do we do from there? You know, I feel like Buddhist studies has no sense of a public intellectual, you mm-hmm. know, I think Buddhist traditions do Asian societies with have a lot of public intellectuals that are mm-hmm. doing things, but you know, this, the public intellectual role in Buddhist studies and the public, who are the publics of Buddhist in ways of Buddhist studies? I mean, maybe that's the first question, right? Yeah. So I don't know. Why do you think, what is that? What do you think is at the root of that silence though? I agree completely. Now that you say it, it makes total sense. Yeah. What, but what, why? Yeah. Why, why, what is that the root of that, that deafening silence from Buddhist studies, academics about mm-hmm. ongoing real violence? I mean, to be honest, like what comes to my mind, I don't think the people individually how do not have those commitments or are immoral or that don't aren't profoundly active in other ways in their lives. Um, but I do think the Buddhism continues to, as much as there is something called Buddhist studies that we could point to, I do think that um, the classical, the textual, the philological reigns supreme, right? And so something called like the anthropology of Buddhism, um, I mean, there's incredible scholars doing that kind of thing, but it, it's it's nascent compared to, say, the anthropology of Christianity, the anthropology of Islam, mm-hmm. you know, which, if I'm not mistaken, we're sort of emerging as really wonderful, critical, revisionist fields in what, like the 90s or something like that? I mean, I might be wrong about that, but um, already, you know, think of like the Saba Mahmuds, you know what I mean? The uh, the panel classes here at UCR. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's many. Simon Coleman's, all these other wonderful Ruth Marshall people, mm-hmm. incredible. Kevin O'Neill, scholars of Christianity. I mean, in Buddhist studies, I think of Charlene Mackley, Martin Mills, and others. You know, the way they talk and think and implicate themselves in their field sites. That's this. Maybe that's the thing. It's not just about who are the publics, but also what is the f- the field site. You know, Buddhism is the question I had with my graduate students. Where is the Buddhism? Where is Buddhism located? in this round of readings. Of course, it's often in texts and it's often um, uh, in texts that are div- uh, extricated from a particular social context. And, you know, we all know those histories, right? That, you know, this is like the history of kind of the construction of original pure Buddhism owned by the Orientalist in, in Europe that sort of claims that history and and marginalizes lived traditions in colonized Asia. That's fine, but I do think that, um, you know, the classical textual orientation of something called Buddhist studies reigns supreme still. And um, that the who the publics of Buddhist studies are is ambiguous because what is the field of Buddhist studies? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Is it anthropologists, philologists, textualists? It's like a collision course of Cold War area studies with Orientalist scholarship, you know, professional historians who, you know, embed their work on something called Buddhism within economic and social and political context. Um, you know what I mean? It's just this, there's, it's a very uh, opaque, a lot of white noise when it comes, but everyone seems to think there's something called Buddhist studies. And something called Buddhism, but I'm not so sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I feel one of the tensions I see around me a lot is also a real reluctance to yeah, embrace anything that's going on really right now, right? Like mm-hmm. we're comfortable with the historical objects, mm-hmm. but 
the contemporary gets too messy too fast. And mm -hmm. so I at least feel like what I perceive in the few <laughs> in environments that I've been in is a real reluctance to embrace a, you know, living, breathing faith community as part of the same discourse oh, as sure. our yeah. fifth century texts. Absolutely. Yeah. And only, and also the teaching of Buddhism itself could be like this profound expression of the interdis interdisciplinary spirit of like the liberal arts or something like that in the sense of like, you know, you can teach Buddhism as medicine. You can teach Buddhism as the history of law. You can teach Buddhism as the history of politics. You can do a, the gender history of Buddhism. I mean, you can do all these things. Mm -hmm. By religion, this 19th century Protestant category that's mm -hmm. kind of, you know, universalized into this language of pluralism. Um, the classical, philological, textualist kind of orientation of the field, which I do think is important. And that's actually what I, the way I work, by the way. But with... Um, uh, say ethnographic approaches or anthropological approaches or historical approaches that are deeply embedded in broader conversations about social theory and revisionist narratives and so on. Buddhist studies could be, could be contributing to changing broad humanist and social scientific conversations like say the anthropology of Islam has. Like think of Sabah Mahmood and all these people, uh, Amir Mittemeyer here in this department, right? Who are mm -hmm. just challenging like the kind of liberal humanist presuppositions that are at the root of so many humanities and social science models by just looking at other ways of being in the world, you know? So a Buddhism could do that so well. It's forged in that space. And that makes for exciting teaching, I yeah. think. It can do, you know? So can you tell us a little bit, I mean, because it's so topical and it just came out, can you tell us a little bit about the book project and how your teaching maybe changed in the process of thinking through the material that you've studied for the book? Differently, because I'm sure it has, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe you want to tell us a little bit about the book, Ocean of Milk, Ocean of Blood, a Mongolian Monk in the Ruins of the Qing Empire. Um, you know, the the elevator synopsis first for people who oh, haven't yet gosh. met the book. Yeah. Um and but also then with the view of like how did your how did your teaching either inflect what happens in the book or how has your teaching changed as a result of this? Sure. Yeah. Um well I guess it's an attempt at doing all the stuff I was just rambling on about, which is I didn't want to write a book that was a Buddhist studies book. Mm -hmm. I didn't want the word Buddhism in the title of my book. Did you have to fight for that, by the way? I didn't. I thought no? I might have oh, okay. to. They insisted I have the word Mongolian in the book because that's the other thing. I don't want to really don't want to be pigeonholed uh, in these different area studies subfields that, in fact, the project itself is challenging, you know. But um, anyway, so that was a concession, which is fine. But uh you know, the book, in a nutshell, is about Buddhism in Asia's first experiment with socialism, which is in Mongolia, um, rooted in what's now Ulaanbaatar, you know, the capital of the country of Mongolia today, but was known as Urga and Ikhuri and all these other things over time. Um, and the book uh, is exploring the contents of social and religious imagination amongst monks who did not join the revolutionary party, who are not part of the revolutionary program and how they set the collapse of the Qing and the rise of nationalism and socialism into time and place outside of what the revolutionary leaders were doing and, uh, and various progressive monks, like inventing the national subject, inventing national history, starting to use concepts like religion ethnicity and race, unilineal history 
you know, through their kind of adoption uh, of uh, all these narratives of modernity, right? Uh, and that's what I, so the book is trying as best as I can to do two things, which is to sort of illuminate best based on the sources I considered the surviving sources, which really come from one figure, Zawadamdan, um, who was, came to prominence as a abbot, but also as a pilgrim, an intellectual. He was also part of the founding of the Mongolian, um, uh, Academy of Science or what, you know, what becomes the Mongolian Academy of Science. He was talking to, uh, Russian Buddhologists and he was talking to people in the, um, Bakhtin circle. You know what I mean? He was in global conversations like many of the Asian Buddhist leaders who we have kind of grouped together under this Buddhist modernist label. But unlike, you know, Gendon Chopel, or unlike um, Saida, or unlike Suzuki, Zawa Damden deeply engaged the you know those enlightenment tradition, but then rejected them completely. Mm. And what he does is he sets the project of nation building, of socialism, of the modern, and of the ways in which we know Asia, like the founding moments of the of say Orientalism and Buddhist studies, into completely other histories. That were neither, I argue in the book, neither of the Qing nor of the nation. And that's a short-lived 20, 30-year history that ends in an act of profound state violence in some ways. Um, But it also informs, uh, I try to show, an entire sense of deep history that the Mongols bring into the broader, say, Tibetan diaspora after 1959. And if you read contemporary works by Mongol or Tibetan lamas on like the Silk Road, Fasyan, uh, you know, the Turks and all that stuff, I mean, they're Mongols and it tells a very particular history that has sort of been central to placemaking for refugee and diaspora communities, right? Um, so the interest in the book was like, okay, if not the nation, then what? You know, and that's, and if not modernism, then what? And if a a post-imperial or post-colonial moment can proceed in Asia without being only defined as coming from contact with Europe, then what? <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So this became, in as best as I could, a project about, well, what gets called alternative modernities, but I don't like that term, because why privilege modernity if it's not what's there? And so I ended up kind of developing this big argument about Zawadamdan's use of autobiographical writing or biographical writing, um, historiography, and so on, forged in this very synthetic frontier Tibetan-Mongolian-Chinese-Buryat kind of ecology over the course of the Qing that he uses to make sense of the modern in the sense of he needed to very deeply engage these ideas in order to reject them. It wasn't just about ignoring um, and, uh, and I try to tell the way that he talks about his life and about the w- global history and in particular about what others were beginning to call a progressive revolution in, in his, in very specific terms and how that represents an erased kind of way of place and time making. Mm-hmm. So it's a micro history. It's a biographically driven history, sort of in the obscure corners of, um, you know, the re- the transformation of Eurasia obscure from the point of view of like how we normally divide scholarship on the on on these on Russia or China for example but i want to argue that this should be there should be more 
comparative analysis of what I call counter-modern Buddhisms that um, I think we're actually like the silent majority in, say, Japan or Myanmar or in Sri Lanka or Thailand. You know, not, not just the guys, the monks that were studying Hegel and starting to talk about nationalism and showing up at the World Parliament of Religions in 1893. Well, like, what were the other? Because those guys were not that popular in Asia. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? What were the conservative abbots saying when the 13th Dalai Lama tried to have a modern army or a secular school? We don't know because, um, well, I mean, I can't, I haven't tried to study that, but we don't know because uh, in some ways it fits a particular template about how we talk about the modernizing in Asia which is fits and starts, adopting capitalism, socialism, you know, unilineal history, the national subject, secular knowledge, science, industry progress, and all these more subtle narratives that kind of are these myths of modernity, like individualization, agency, self-ownership. In other words, all the stuff that has been, was for 200 years sided with Europe, you know, versus tradition, stasis, religion, Asia, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if we ignore the guys in Asia that were just inverting Orientalism to make it work for their own revisionist projects, reformist projects, what else was going on? You know, so that's what the book's trying to do. Very cool. So that's not an elevator Very version. Cool. It's a little <laughs> long for an elevator version, but it's good. Um, but counter-modernism. So I love this, mm-hmm. right? So if so if Zawa Damden and his, and his project mm-hmm. is using biography as... So you're kind of suggesting this like radical resistance to Buddhism, modernism? Sorry, biography, biography, historiography, yeah. polemics, letter yeah. writing. There's a few different genres. So like the op- like he's actually kind of proposing like a radical historical situatedness rather than a project that launches one out of it. Yeah. So he so his project is essentially to counter a lot of things we uh, associate with modernity, like social mobility, the invention of public cultures. Um, the rationalization of public space, you know, like mm. in kind of modernity theory and so on. I mean, what you know, that's kind of, you know, going back to what, to like Weber and Durkheim and so on, right? I mean, these are kind of like ideas of progress and um, and global historical kind of developments that we sometimes use unselfconsciously in the study of Asia. So he, I'm saying that, look, he, he, never, he never uses the word socialism or communism. He never names a single revolutionary leader. Yet he writes about, I say, he writes about the revolution over 9,000 pages in 20, 30 years. And nothing else survives by any other, of that scope or length, by any other thinker um, before the state violence. So it's idiosyncratic, but he is in broad conversation. Um, But what I'm saying is that he's adopting all these Qing paradigms, orientations to history, social reproduction, authority, um, the march of history, uh, how one cultivates oneself and one's community and so on um, to critique a lot of the stuff that we kind of associate with modernization. As I said, social mm-hmm. mobility, the invention of public cultures. Mm-hmm. This is unacceptable to him, you know? Mm-hmm. But other elements of the sort of, you know, invention of Asia, like he uses all this scholarship on Silk Road excavations. Um, he uses French historical fiction to buttress his interpretations of like third century prophecy. He's talking to people in the Bakhtin circle and he's exchanging texts with some of the early Buddhologists like Sherbatsky and all these guys from Russia um, to extend, essentially extend Qing era scholastic orientations to place and time to make sense of what others were calling modernization. And he knows what he's against, but he ultimately had it, it, there is no answer 
in for him and his late writing before he dies, which is right when the purges happen. Um, you know, I sort of show that both when he's narrating his personal story as well as global history, um, it's done. You know, there is no repairing tradition. There's no answer. An ocean of milk has come, become an ocean of blood. That's where the title of the books come. That's his recurring metaphor for what he was seeing, you know? So it's very tragic, you know, but it's coming at the end of like a 30 year, 20, 30 year engagement with the, the very architects of, you know, the production of the modern in Asia's heartland during this mm. first experiment with, with socialism. Um, and he just comes to very different terms. And it's very different than how he's remembered in contemporary Mongolia, by the way, which is, I'm curious to see how this book will be received there. Yeah. What where, do you think? What's your feeling on how it will be? I don't think it'll be. Well, I, sh- I shouldn't say that. I'm, no, I'm curious. Yeah. I'll say that. Yeah. I'm curious because Avadamdin is, and I talk about this in the book a little, he's remembered in all these ambiguous ways, essentially as Mongolia's like first modernist. He's called a scientist as well as being like the last feudalist <laughs> kind of uh, Qing era, sort of Qing centric figure. Um, but largely he's been sort of imagined as a national hero and there's statues for him around and so on. Um, but the story I tell is that, you know, he's, a, he's really trying to extend the Qing not politically necessarily, but in terms of the, its orientation to authority, power, social hierarchy, um, and just ways of knowing place and time. You know what I mean? So it's kind of a different story. So I'm curious if it's noticed or what narratives it complicates yeah. if there's pushback. Yeah. How does this work that now you've been really invested in for enough years to, mm-hmm. enough years to get this book out, um, how does it change your teaching and what you want to do with it? Like, what do you think the value... Yeah will be as surely if even if your students know something about Buddhism, they're not going to know much about Zawa Damden until, until they meet you or read the book. <laughs> right. Yeah, so what's, true. what is, where's the value in this project to them? Uh-huh. So there's two, two ways, I guess that come to mind. Um, and there's also kind of two ways that it dovetails with the ways I'm approaching teaching about Buddhism, which was part of your earlier question. One is that it's important for students to know how global the world was prior to our kind of late capitalist moment, you know, and the way that our students themselves may have, you know, walk into our classrooms from everywhere and, you know, um, and their own kind of personal stories or the ways that we construct difference, you know, and mobility in our particular moment. You know, I live in Southern California and it's a very, you know, a live conversation, of course, right? Um, So to know and to learn about how, you know, what the Silk Road was, how late Imperial Eurasia was profoundly interconnected and how monks in the Gobi Desert were reading French historical fiction and how Hegel was being received in the Zed Monastery, for example, or how, more importantly for, for maybe this conversation, how Orientalist scholarship was being repurposed in the frontiers of empire and colony. And that's, for me, like, you know, I'm really excited by work like Walter Mignolo and others who have done this stuff in like this in Latin America, like how did Renaissance culture, how was Renaissance culture repurposed in say like the quote unquote dark frontiers of of the Spanish colonies, for example. Well, that's happening in all the Buddhist societies we explore as well. You know what I mean? So in two, it's globalizing the humanities and social sciences it's setting it into a particular power context. It's showing that the Buddhism we're studying is not, you know, a bunch of Asian men in robes on a mountain, but people that are profoundly implicated in not only in the production of 
a legal, political, you know, medical, whatever orders in the societies in which they lived. But more recently, they're also implicated in the way we teach and think about Asia. You know what I mean? Like um, they were talking to people that founded the disciplines that house the course catalogs that our students teach. You know what I'm saying? As I say in the book, our primary sources, our secondary sources are in our primary sources. There's lots of implications for that, I think. So talking about, uh, you know, pre-modern in the sense of like, not of this moment, but pre-modern um, globalisms and the way that Buddhism was deeply connected with that um, is important, you know, in a kind of inter-Asian frame uh, is important. And then, um, you know, first-person perspectives on the bloody making of the modern world is always revelatory, you know? And um, whether it's people who are the architects of such making or the victims of such making, and we ought to know those stories uh, as well as we can. And we ought to be led into those stories so that our presumptions are troubled and that we need to work across a gap to get into the space of, say, a Gobi monk from born in 1867, who watches the Qing fall, all of the lamas that he studied with, you know, be lined up and shot during trials, all of his students lined up and in prison and die without even a sense of uh, that there was, that history existed still in a way that he had known it. You know what I mean? So that's like an obscure, tragic story of one man and his immediate community, but it's the work to get to know that story and to trouble our own presumptions is the work, you know? Mm -hmm. So specifically, I wanted to, sorry, to change the change tax a little yeah. bit, but um, classroom assignments, writing, oh, right, right. ebooks, what do you do? How do you do it? Give us some tools. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, I always struggle with, and that's something I'm keen to listen to these podcasts later, the other folks you talk to, because, you know, I think we all in Buddhist studies struggle with how much primary source material can you introduce yeah. i think a lot of people i mean i think probably everyone is like ah, I, if nothing else i'd love my students to read you know whatever magic labyrinth's biography or a ritual text or some geography or pilgrimage tale from completely other time and place and through this medium of like literature and language or art historical material or whatever um they might encounter um you know an otherwise way of being human so anyways that's great. That sounds great on paper, but it's very complicated to do that when our students have at best uneven background in, you know, Indic traditions or references, Asian religions generally, um, especially all the technical jargon that is, you know, usually in the sorts of Buddhism that was written down <laughs> yeah. in the pre-modern world. Right. So um, that's a constant ongoing thing that I struggle with. Um, but uh, you know, you can remedy that by also including new media and so on as primary sources. And mm -hmm. I mean, I often direct students to, you know, read, you know, develop your project on whatever Miller Epa's biography by finding some recent YouTube clips by some llama who's explaining what it means to a contemporary audience and think about the medium, the competing mediums and the competing kind of presentations of um, Miller Epa's life and competing presentations about what these different viewers or readers are supposed to be doing in relationship to themselves, according to these different messages, you know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. you can kind of like incorporate, um, that stuff. What I've really been trying to work on is about addressing, um, 
the sorry fate of most undergraduate writing, which is that it moves quickly across the desk of a TA or a professor and ends up in the recycle bin. Mm -hmm. And yet we're constantly asking students to be inspired in their writing and for it to be a, a big exploration, you know, and yet it's just the outcome is the paper mill, you know? Um, and so what I've, I have this hypothesis that I'm think is that I think is true now, which is that the more, audiences you can get for undergraduate writing at each stage of the process, the better they'll do in the sense that they will really try to push themselves to develop their voice and communicate their ideas uh, at a, at a level where they, you know, pushing themselves beyond their comfort zone and beyond just the 4am the night before it's due, you know, that we all did. Right. Um, so I'm trying to do, I've done that in several ways. So um, I've asked them, uh, instead of just having, you know, 40 individual research papers, I've tried a few times having the entire class and me write a collective volume together and actually publish it as an ebook where I'll write the introduction and I make them write chapters or sections together. Um, so they each take a, each take a, 10 pages or seven pages of this chapter. And then they need to co-write the introduction and conclusion to that section together. And then I write the um, introduction and then we try to publish it. So then they technically have a publication, you know, whatever worth that, whatever that's worth of, you know, it's a publication of a kind, but it's a publication, yeah. you know, as they say, it's something to go tell mom about when they go home at Christmas, you know, um, and so on topics like what, what have you done that with? I'm just curious. So that's been mostly not in my Buddhism classes, yeah, but, but sure. it's been in a class I teach called problem, the problem of religion, which is essentially about the construction of secular spaces and the problematic mm, ways that things that are called religion occupy our public spaces. Um, so for example, those two, I always try to teach these classes very from a very stubbornly global perspective because in American institutions, the orientation is usually so Americanist. Um, and so I'll assign them like Uganda. U5 students are doing Uganda. What are current debates in Uganda about the space of religion in public life, right? There's lots going on, right? Or in Myanmar today right? Or China or whatever. And so, you know, I give them a list, they choose. And that's good because then it's a lot of ways for them to lean in. Like, oh, I'm a business major, but I want to go do, you know, business in China or whatever. My dad's, you know, from Turkey. So I want to do the Turkey one. You know, there, there's a way for them to make some choices. And then, um, you know, just have to help them get to podcasts or English language news or get into some primary sources about that's available to them about these debates. And then they need to each choose subsections and study the same set of primary sources from different disciplinary perspectives. So it's a bit, you know, heavy handed. So like one of them is going to be a Marxist analyst. Mm. One of them's a Freudian. One of them's doing a gender theory analysis. One of them's doing like a post-colonial analysis, for example, you know? And so then the chapter becomes looking at the same set of primary sources that they've all helped themselves find with me. And then they see how different, analytical perspectives produce different sorts of insights and stories. And then they need to, as a group to co-write just a couple pages to introduce what they accomplished together and then to conclude what they accomplished together. So that's an example. That's so cool. It's yeah, it's, it's cool. It's a lot of work and it gets jumbly, <laughs> but I think it, it's cool overall. And then, so another, you know, I also use Twitter. I use blogging. I use as many other things as I can to just sort of have public writing 
And I also make them peer review their work, um, read each other's work and, and offer anonymous suggestions. And, um, you know, some of their tweets, you know, have even been picked up by some, one of their tweets was picked up on, uh, by someone at the British library and that freaked them out. You know, we were reading oh. about Islam or no about, yeah, we we're reading about Freud and someone was giving me a presentation at the British library and retweeted a couple of my students tweets that were just responding to, you know, totem and taboo or something like that. Mm. And, Oh my God, a real like scholar of Islam at the British library just retweeted my tweet in Riverside. You know what I mean? So that was cool. When it works, it works really well. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, and the, and the readings, um, so you, you talked about the difficulty of assigning, like, I think too much primary source or too much translation. What, so what was the answer that you've come to? And not that there is one, but what do you do there? Like what's, how much is the right stuff? And Mm -hmm what alternatives to those readings are there too? Yeah, that's a good question. Okay. So again, with Buddhist studies classes, um, I'm at a real crossroads. I think what I need to do is to like many, maybe uh, many of us to not try to cover as much ground as we try to cover in the teaching of Asian history and Asian religions. Um, you know, we're trying to go, you know, cover 2,500 years. Um, and maybe to slow down and choose particular moments so that students can work through over more than one or two classes a, uh, a primary source um, so that you can be checking in as they're reading the primary source, working on difficult language. That can actually be part of the teaching, right, where they're bringing lists of concepts or references that they don't understand. You can collectively work through them, which is another part of the public uh, writing side of that I do in my these classes, I have them write encyclopedia entries that we try to post on maps across different iterations of the class, so that they're writing, for example, about I don't know, like the Diamond Sutra or about um, whatever Bodh Gaya or something like that, and their and their article will be going to a website that um, is also populated by the entries on important people, place, things, or ideas in the history of Buddhism that previous generations of students have done, you know what I mean? So they're sort of like their writing is being posted for posterity (laughs) in a kind of wiki way to a map. So it's visualized and it's this aggregation of multi, uh, of student work, uh, over multiple years. Um, so that kind of thing works in the sense that they can study a primary source and then just answer the basic who, what, where, why of that source in their writing. Um, but I do think that um, uh, the scope of what we call Buddhism is so vast, culturally, linguistically, politically, that um, it's so dizzying. And I think the dizziness comes from the fact that we call this vast history a thing mm-hmm. that you would teach in a class called Intro to Buddhism, which is ridiculous, you know? So um, I think primary sources are really good, but they have to be exemplary and partial. And you have to work with students in person and at home. Why do you ask students to read articles or books that have won awards and uh, learn from learned societies like the AAR? How do you use readings like that, like journal articles, newer ones? Right. Why do you use them? What's the strategy there? Okay, so this is coming from um, the first method and theory class I've taught for doctoral students in Buddhist studies, which I just finished two days ago. Great. Um, and so that, pro- so, you know, my task there was to say, I need these students to have something on their transcripts that says Buddhism in it. And, um, in terms of a seminar and my students at this point are not focused exclusively in, uh, you know, 
20th century Mongolia or something like that. They're working on various traditions. Not yet. <laughs> right, they're doing Dream amazing big. stuff. They're no. doing amazing stuff. But it's um, the idea of focusing in an area or on a particular genre made no sense. Or even a particular method. Some of them are working historically. Some of them are working kind of ethnographically. I like to kind of carry the middle with the kind of thinking from the point of view of historical anthropology. Anyways, um, so here's my task. What does a method in theory class look like for Buddhist study students? You know, that was really the fun part of the last 10 weeks for me was thinking about that with these great students. And um, for the, luckily for them, I didn't go with my first inclination was like, let's actually read Mueller. Let's actually read Reese Davis. Let's plow through all the 19th century stuff that we are already, that we are either going to extend in our scholarship that we are going to reject, but we will know it. We will be professionally conversant and not just sort of rehashing the idea that, you know, Orientalist era scholarship is bad. We're going to actually read it. That's what I try to do in my other class. So let's read Marx. Let's read Freud. You know, let's read Durkheim. Um, but anyways, but then thankfully for, for them, I didn't do that. I decided what would be more useful is like, why not do the opposite and read 20 books in Buddhist studies that have been published in the last 10 or 15 years that have been conversation changing and more importantly have been read by people outside of Buddhist studies. And not only that, forget Buddhist studies, have been read outside of Tibetan studies, the study of classical India. You know what I'm saying? Zen studies or something like that or American Buddhism. You know what I mean? What books on Buddhist Asia, or just not, not on Buddhist Asia, sorry, what books about Buddhism have won awards at the American Historical Association, have won um, awards at the AAR, but not in Buddhist studies for the, its their um, uh, analysis of religion writ large? You know what I mean? In other words, what books on Buddhist studies that have been made published in the last 10, 15 years have been most legible to scholars outside of Buddhist studies. And let's look at the anatomy of those books and how they situate themselves in relationship to the sort of 19th century, again, colonial orientalist constructions of the non-West, and how do they frame their departures and interventions. And I think the students are very thankful that we read really great recent writing, genre-changing, and conversation-leading work that is the sort of thing they want to do, which is to be taken seriously by their colleagues in gender sexuality studies um, or the folks working on secularism or, you know, um, transnational religions or all these mm-hmm. other broader conversations that I'm trying to help them be a part of, in yeah. addition to being very good scholars of Buddhism. Any specific standouts, too, that worked well that your students responded to or that were... Yeah, they loved um, Johann Elverskog's Buddhism and Islam on the Silk Road, you know, which just did that incredible thing but that seems so intuitive when you see someone else do it which is just like why don't we think buddhism and islam together (laughs) these traditions have formed one another for centuries and centuries and centuries and what Mm -hmm. does that change when we think about them together and what is that critique in our own topographies of knowledge right they love that they loved um charlene mackley's work on uh um movement and the construction of gender and ethnic boundaries in contemporary Labrang, you know, so her work on Labrang uh, and Korwa or circumambulation, um, 
Gregory Chopin, you know, uh, and not just his books, but I assigned his lectures. He has two lectures, one to graduate students in Buddhist studies at UVA a few years ago, and one that he gave, uh, some keynote he gave at UCLA that's online called Buddhist, The Buddha as Businessman. And of both of those, in a way that, you know, only Gregory Chopin can do, he challenges all these presumptions that we regularly reproduce in the study of Buddhism. For example, that we know what the Buddha said, what he thought, what he meant to say, and what he really meant to say. Um, and also, more importantly, you know, he says radical things like, hey, if you want to actually do histories of Buddhism, you should get some training in from professional historians, for one. You should look at works about Buddhist societies made by professional historians where Buddhism might not even be an entry in the index, and yet they're saying profound things about Buddhist traditions. For example, because they, you know, looking at economy, uh, looking at, um, you know, political and legal realities, you know, uh, land-owning laws and things like that that actually formed, you know, what we call Buddhism. And also he does an incredible thing where he says... Um, you know, if you want social history, find out where women are, right? Which is what he's done. And it's like, sounds, you know, that's so revelatory. And it says, it says something about Buddhist studies that it is revelatory, right? You know, the nuns, let's find out what women were doing. And then we'll find out what, um, what might've been actually going on from a historian's point of view, you know? So they'll, and we have to also stop saying they're absent, right? Cause they weren't right. Like they're no, there all along, they right? Sure they're there all along. And yeah, actually we just don't. Right. Often that this is this is sorry it's so related to our topic with Vanessa at our okay. first podcast that in fact they are there all along even actually in the really you know the texts where we always just say they're absent but how many times have we reproduced the narrative that they're absent when we just haven't done the work to locate them absolutely yeah but anyway absolutely and something I talk about in my book as well mm -hmm. actually is that even when uh, women as such are neither the authors nor the topic of the writing, gender is still important. What is masculinism in our sources, right? I mean, that's central to the yeah. story I try to tell. How do you develop your skills as an educator, right? We're, we're always developing, I guess, on all fronts, so it's unfair to pigeonhole the idea of, of your teaching in some senses, but what are specific ways that you wrestle with developing? As a teacher, do you do workshops or read or listen or what do you do? Recommendations mm. you could share maybe with other people who are in the same battlefield sometimes of making this work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I try to go to some, you know, teaching workshops here and there when you can, but it's hard to get the time to go as we all know. Um, I, I, what I found with my teaching in Buddhist studies and elsewhere uh, is that you can teach any topic from many perspectives, but the best teaching will come from the perspective that you're most excited about. So I try to always choose now things that relate to what I'm thinking about in my own work that I'm most excited about um, so that I can do the thing which is good teaching, which is performing inspired learning, you know, being the clown up there, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, scream talking about how exciting it is to think about um, embodiment in another time or place or the boundaries between people and environment or whatever, you know what I mean? So for me, good teaching is all about performing inspired learning. And um, that relates to everything. And so in terms of actual technical learning related to teaching, I would just say that something that uh, any 
professor in the humanities or social science will grumble about as they get a coffee is that students don't read, um, they can't read and they can't write, you know? And um, I've been learning about and very trying to learn more about work about um, what literacy is and also how we become literate, which of course isn't just recognizing black marks on a page, but it has to do with like a general education, right? And so when we see students that come in and struggle with reading, you know what I mean? It's, they are technically literate, but the students have such a diversity of experience in general education, particularly where I teach diversity of like quality of high schools, family experiences and, and um, with education and, you know, spread between many, you know, kind of countries and many contexts and so on. And so, um, you have to be very intentional about what reading and writing is and teach it. And I would say it's not the fault of the students is that we don't have very much clarity about it. You know what I mean? We're never taught how to teach. We're never taught how to write. And yet all we do is read and write as academics, you know? So I do think that um, thinking about literacy and also, you know, there's, you know, stuff that I share with the students about, um, you know, cognitive science, uh, scientific research about, the effects of flicking on phones with those different sorts of attention that we that we have and how that kind of attention taps into certain cognitive kind of processes and erodes sustained deeper attention, you know? Anyways, stuff that is kind of relevant because it challenges the students to be intentional about looking and reading 20 pages that might at first seem opaque, but which through some work can become... Uh, alive for them and is about flexing and developing skills that they might didn't know they didn't have. Do you know what I'm saying? So kind of like situating them and what we're doing. I also talk a lot about student evaluations and the way that those are so gendered in class and raised, um, which is revelatory. You know what I mean? For, I mean, for me, but also for them. So I think inviting, making the space, the space a workshop in all these ways yeah. is what's most central. Yeah. Thank you so much, Matt, for talking to us today. It's my pleasure. Um, is there anything else you wanted to, us to add before we missed? I had I had a secret hope we were going to get to talk about the rap you once used in your class. You used rap. I remember. <laughs> right? I used Wu-Tang Clan. How? So tell me how. Where did it come oh. in? I love it. I want to do it so bad. And I just don't know how. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. Well, th- so... There's a book out there, and this is years ago, so I'm sorry I didn't. It's not oh, at the front no, of my no. mind. You can find it, and it's I think it's the Riza, the Riza, the Wu Tang Clan. You know, he draws a lot on Taoism, right? So it's, I think I think it's a book called like the Tao of the Wu or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. You know, there's this whole like ideology behind what some of those guys were doing. It had to do with like black liberation. It had to do with sort of streams of Asian religious traditions, as well as like martial disciplines, like with the martial arts connected with sort of like revolutionary black politics mm-hmm. as well as like currents from Islam and Christianity and other kinds of African religions. Right. Anyways, like really interesting at the back of like, you know, these guys from the nineties and anyway, someone put a book together, which is like sayings of like the Riza and the Jizza, mm-hmm. the ghost face killer, all these guys. <laughs> um, but in the mode of like, you know, like a Taoist text. Yeah. And I, I just use that in a yeah. intro to Asian religions class okay. or something. Okay. But the yeah. joke was, is I'm so old. Those guys didn't even know what the who the Wu Tang were, so it was like a total failure because yeah. it was like a it was yeah. so dated. Right. 
I, I had that experience cool. with Pulp Fiction where I thought I was being so cool. And I was right. like, and then remember that part of Pulp Fiction? And everybody was uh, like, that's the year I was born. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah. Well, I taught religion religion and violence. I'm like opening the class with 9-11 and these kids aren't even born then. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like what yeah. I would assume is like the founding yeah. moment. Okay, so thank you so much, Matt, for talking to us today. Thanks to Matt for sharing so much with us that day and for speaking so honestly and openly about your teaching practice and your own thoughts. Thank you, listeners, for being here and for being with us through this conversation. For reference to the resources that we discussed in this episode, please be sure to check our show notes. And if you like what you heard please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, The Circled Square. This has been a really rich conversation and we would love to hear from you about ways that you think this field matters, ways that we can make it make sense for our students and ways that we could all be better public intellectuals. So we'd love to hear from you. Please get in touch through our website to share with us ideas, drop us a line, send us an email, let us know your questions or your tools for teaching in Buddhist studies. A very big special thanks to our creative director, Dr. Betsy Moss, who's in charge of making these podcasts here in Toronto. Thank you for listening. Be well. <laughs>